Welcome to the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. This podcast will be a sharing of part of my morning routine as I prepare for the day with the Word of God. We will be partaking of Puritan prayers from the Valley of Vision, each day's morning devotional from Charles Haddon Spurgeon's Morning and Evening, and we'll be reading from the Legacy Standard Bible, which is the newest and, I believe, the most accurate translation of the Word of God. We will be following a Bible reading calendar that provides for reading the whole Bible in a year that was created by Minister Robert Murray McShane for his congregation back in 1842, and that has been a part of my daily reading for over six years now. Good morning and welcome to the morning segment of the, let's see, Wednesday, January 18th episode. I think that's episode 140. I think that's correct. 140 of the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. I am Wayne Floyd, your host, and um, we're sitting here and getting ready. We're going to go ahead and do our reading for this morning, and then we're going to do our uh, our Bible uh, study for this e- in the evening segment. Um, I hope you're all doing well. I hope you've, you've um, had a solid beginning to the year and that you're, uh, well, I don't know, I, I, that things are going well for you. I would, I would hope that things are going well for you. Um, let's go ahead and let's dive right in. So we're going to go ahead and open up this morning with our, oh, wait, I'm sorry. I did think of some things. Wow. Brain's just not clicking very well this morning. Um, let's see. Uh, in the show notes, again, we've got the, the link for the new Bible reading plan. It's the 2023 Bible reading plan that I have down there. I've continued to keep in there the McShane reading plan. Um, I would definitely hope that you would use that for your own personal reading. Um, definitely worthwhile. I know that's what I've been doing as I moved it back into my personal reading um, since I wasn't using it on the podcast anymore. Um, but there's also a link there um, for our church's um, the Vale Valley Baptist Church uh, Give, Send, Go campaign. Uh, we are trying to move ahead, uh, getting our mortgage paid off as quickly as possible so we can move into earmarking money to develop and build out a traditional Christian-based school um, so that we can have a place that we trust for our children, our grandchildren to be educated. Um, so that that's what we're trying to do here. Um, you know, we would we would ask you to prayerfully consider it, and we would definitely ask for your prayers and support as we move forward. But we would definitely ask you to prayerfully consider it. Um, and it, it, you know, and and if you can give, if if you feel led to give, that's great. If you don't, just please pass it on. Um, actually, pass it on whether you give or not. Um, the more people that see it, the the probability is that the more people that we'll give and we'll get us closer to our goal. So again, just want to thank you for your, for any time you spend with that. All right, now let's go ahead. Sorry. I, I'm glad I finally remembered that. Let's go ahead and get started with it being Wednesday. It is our, we'll open up with our fourth day morning prayer. It's called true Christianity. Let's pray. Lord of heaven, thy goodness is inexpressible and inconceivable in the works of creation. Thou art almighty in the dispensations of providence, all wise, in the gospel of grace, all love, and in thy Son thou hast provided for our deliverance from the effects of sin, the justification of our persons, the sanctification of our natures, the perseverance of our souls in the path of life. Though exposed to the terrors of thy law, we have a refuge from the storm. Though compelled to cry unclean, we have a fountain for sin, 
the creature cells of emptiness, we have a fullness accessible to all and incapable of reduction. Grant us always to know that to walk with Jesus makes other interests a shadow and a dream. Keep us from intermittent attention to eternal things. Save us from the delusions of those who fail to go far in religion, who are concerned but not converted, who have another heart but not a new one, who have light, zeal, confidence, but not Christ. Let us judge our Christianity not only by our dependence upon Jesus, but by our love to him, our conformity to him, our knowledge of him. Give us a religion that is both real and progressive, that holds on its way and grows stronger, that lives and works in the spirit, that profits by every correction, and is injured by no carnal indulgence. Amen. All right. And now our morning devotion from Spurgeon's Morning and Evening for January 18th. The devotion, the text for it is Hebrews 4.9. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. How different will be the state of the believer in heaven from what it is here. Here he is born to toil and suffer weariness, but in the land of the immortal, in, sorry, but in the land of the immortal, fatigue is never known. Anxious to serve his master, he finds his strength. Unequal to, he finds his strength unequal to his zeal. His constant cry is, Help me to serve thee, O my God. If he be thoroughly active, he will have much labor, not too much for his will, but more than enough for his power, so that he will cry out, I am not wearied of the labor, but I am wearied in it. Ah, Christian, the hot day of weariness lasts not forever. The sun is nearing the horizon. It shall rise again with a brighter day. Than thou hast ever seen upon a land where they serve God day and night, and yet rest from their labors. Here rest is but partial, there it is perfect. Here the Christian is always unsettled, he feels that he has not yet attained. There all are at rest, they have attained the summit of the mountain, they have ascended to the bosom of their God. Higher they cannot go, ah, toil worn laborer, only think when thou shalt at rest forever. Canst thou conceive it? It is a rest eternally, a rest that remaineth. Here my best joys bear mortal on the brow, my fair flowers fade, my dainty cups are drained to dregs, my sweetest birds fall before death's arrows, my most pleasant days are shadowed into nights, and the flood tides of my bliss subside into ebbs of sorrow. But there everything is immortal, the harp abides unrusted, the crown unwithered, the eye undimmed, the voice unfaltering, the heart wavering, and the immortal being is holy, is wholly absorbed in infinite delight. Happy day, happy, when mortally shall be swallowed up of life, and the eternal Sabbath shall begin. All right, well, let's get into our reading for the day. We're going to start in Genesis 37. We're going to read Genesis 37 and 38. So hear the word of the Lord. Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, when seventeen years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph's brought, Joseph brought back an evil report about them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a very colored tunic. And his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, and so they hated him and could not speak to him in peace. Then Joseph had a dream, and he told it to his brothers, so they hated him even more. 
And he said to them, Please listen to this dream which I have had. Indeed, behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf rose up, and also stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around, and bowed down to my sheaf. Then his brother said to him, Are you really going to reign over us, or are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he had still another dream, and recounted it to his brothers. It's a... Sorry, and said, Behold, I have had still another dream, and behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. And he recounted it to his father and to his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers really come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Then his brothers went to pasture their father's flock in Shishim. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shishim? Come, and I will send you to them. And he said to him, I will go. Then he said to him, Go now and see about the welfare of your brothers and the welfare of the flock, and bring back to me. And, I'm sorry, and bring word back to me. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shishim. And a man found him, and behold, he was wandering in the field. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? And he said, I am seeking my brothers. Please tell me where they are pasturing the flock. Then the man said, They have journeyed from here, for I heard them saying, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. And they saw him from a distance, and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. Then they said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. So now come and let us kill him and cast him into one of the pits, and we will say, A wild beast devoured him. Then let us see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard this and delivered him out of their hands, and said, Let us not strike down his life. Reuben further said to them, Shed no blood, cast him into this pit that is in the wilderness, but do not put forth your hands against him, that he might deliver him out of their hands to return him to his father. Now it happened, when Joseph reached his brothers, that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the very colored tunic that was on him, and they took him and cast him into the pit. Now the pit was empty without any water in it. And they sat down to eat a meal. Then they lifted up their eyes and saw, and behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead, with their camels bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh, going to bring them down to Egypt. And Judah said to his brothers, what gain is it that we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened. Then some Midianite traders passed by, so they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit, and sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. Thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. Then Reuben returned to the pit, and behold, Joseph was not in the pit. So he tore his garments. Then he returned to his brothers and said, The boy is not there. As for me, where am I to go? So they took Joseph's tunic and slaughtered a male goat and dipped the tunic in the blood. And they sent the very colored tunic and brought it to their father and said, We found this. Please recognize it, whether it is your son's tunic or not. And he recognized it and said, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. So Jacob tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. 
Then all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, Surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him in, a, in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. All right. And now Genesis 38. Now it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son, and he named him Ur. Then she conceived again and bore a son, and she named him Onan. And she bore still another son, and she named him Shelah. And it was at Chezib that she bore him. Then Judah, Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of Yahweh, so Yahweh put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go in to your brother's wife, and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her, and raise up a seed for your brother. And Onan knew that the seed would not be his, and it happened that when he went in to his brother's wife, he wasted it on the ground in order not to give seed to his brother. But what he did was displeasing in the sight of Yahweh, so he put him to death also. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Live as a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, I am afraid, lest he also die like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. And after a considerable time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. Then Judah was comforted, and he went up to his sheep shears at Timnah, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. Then it was told to Tamar, Behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she removed her widow's garments from herself, and covered herself with a veil, and wrapped herself. And she sat at the entrance of Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that Shelah had grown up, and she had not been given to him as a wife. Then Judah saw her, and he thought she was a harlot, for she had covered her face. So he turned aside to her by the road, and said, Here now, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He said, Therefore I will send you a young goat from the flock. She said, Moreover, will you give a pledge until you send it? Then he said, What pledge shall I give you? And she said, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went, and she removed her veil from herself and put on her widow's garments. Then Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take the pledge from the woman's hand, but he did not find her. So he asked the men of the place, saying, where is the cult prostitute who was by the road of Enaim? But they said, There has been no cult prostitute there. So he returned to Judah and said, I did not find her. And furthermore, the men of the place said, There has been no cult prostitute here. Then Judah said, Let her keep them, lest we become a laughingstock. Behold, I sent this young goat, but you did not find her. Now it happened about three months later that it was told to Judah, saying, Your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot. And behold, she is also with child by harlotry. Then Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. It was while she was being brought out that she sent to her father-in-law, saying, I am with child by the man to whom these things belong. And she said, Please recognize this and see whose signet ring and cords and staff are these. And Judah recognized them and said, She is more righteous than I, 
inasmuch as I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. Now it happened at the time she was giving birth that, behold, there were twins in her womb. And it happened while she was giving birth, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. And then it happened, as he drew back his hand, that, behold, his brother came out. So she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. So he was named Perez. Afterward his brother came out, who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and he was named Zira. All right. And now Matthew 12, verses 22 through 45. There we go. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him, so that the mute man spoke and saw, and all the crowds were astounded and were saying, Can this man really be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man does not cast out demons except by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And knowing their thoughts, he said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And, I, and if I, by Beelzebul, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason they will be your judge, judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property, unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house? He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you begin, how, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good pleasure what is good, good treasure what is good, sorry, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered and said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation eagerly seeks for a sign. And yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of the Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment, and will condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise up with this generation at the judgment, and will condemn it, because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first.
That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. All right. And now, Psalm 16. A Mictam of David. Keep me, O God, for I take refuge in you. O my soul, you have said to Yahweh, you are my Lord. I have no good without you. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The pains of those who have bartered for another god will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offering of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. Yahweh is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my inheritance is beautiful to me. I will bless Yahweh who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set Yahweh continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not forsake my soul to Sheol. You will not give your Holy One over to see corruption. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. All right. And finally, Proverbs 3, verses 27 through 32. Let me find that. There we go. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due, when it is in your hand to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come back, and tomorrow I will give it, when it is there with you. Do not devise harm against your neighbor while he lives securely beside you. Do not contend with a man without cause, if he has dealt you no harm. Do not envy a man of violence, and do not choose any of his ways. For the devious one is an abomination to Yahweh, but his secret counsel is with the upright. All right, well, that is our reading for the day. Um, I hope you have a wonderful day. Um, I would definitely continue to implore you to go out and do all you do for the glory of God. And uh, God willing, I will see you this evening. Let's go ahead and close out with another Valley of Vision prayer. This one is called A Minister's Confession. And we're going to have a few that are a minister's blank, whatever it is. Um, and it's really easy to think, you know, oh, this is for pastors. No, we're all called to be ministers of the gospel. We are all called to be ministers of the gospel. So this applies to all of us. So again, a minister's confession. Let's pray. O God, I know that I often do thy work without thy power, and sin by my dead, heartless, blind service, my lack of inward light, love, delight, my mind, heart, tongue moving without thy help. I see sin in my heart and seeking the approbation of others. This is my vileness to make men's opinions my rule, whereas I should see what good I have done and give thee glory. Consider what sin I have committed and mourn for that. It is my deceit to preach and pray and to stir up other spiritual affections in order to beget commendations, whereas my rule should be daily to consider myself more vile than any man in my own eyes. But thou dost show thy power by my frailty, so that the more feeble I am, the more fit to be used, for thou dost pitch a tent of grace in my weakness. Help me to rejoice in my infirmities and give thee praise, to acknowledge my deficiencies before others and not be discouraged by them, that they may see thy glory more clearly. Teach me that I must act by a power supernatural, whereby I can attempt things above my strength and bear evils beyond my strength, acting for Christ in all, and have his superior power to help me. 
Let me learn of Paul, whose presence was mean, his weakness great, his utterance contemptible. Yet thou didst account him faithful and blessed. Lord, let me lean on thee as he did, and find my ministry thine. Amen. All right, again, I hope you have a wonderful day, and God willing, I'll see you this evening. Have a good one. God bless. Welcome to the evening segment of the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. Good evening and welcome to the evening segment of the Wednesday, January 18th episode. That would be episode 140 of the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. I continue to be Wayne Floyd, your host. I want to point out again um, our links in the show notes. Again, we've got the 2023 Bible reading plan, but I've also still got the McShane plan for you to use in your personal reading, which I would definitely recommend, as well as a link to our church's Give, Sin, Go campaign. Uh, we're working to try to get our mortgage paid off quickly um, so that we can focus on establishing and building up a um, and, and being able to pay staff for a traditional Christian-based um, school um, to be able to provide ex- educational opportunities um, that, that we trust for our children and grandchildren. So, Again, um, we would definitely um, ask you to prayerfully consider them. Um, we would definitely ask you to pass them on. Um, we can always use your prayer, so that would be great. But if you can prayerfully consider, and if you feel led to, please give. Um, that would definitely bless us very, very much. Um, but like I said, your prayers are honestly what's most important in all of this. So let's go ahead and get started. We're going to be doing our continuing on, on in our study from in John 4. But we're going to open up again with, um, or open up with a prayer from Valley of Vision. Again, this is called. This one is called a minister's Bible. And like I said in the morning session, don't think this is just talking about pastors. We are all called to be ministers of the gospel. Every single one of us, everyone that is brought to saving faith in Christ, is called to be a minister of the gospel. So this applies to you too. So let's pray. O God of truth, I thank thee for the holy scriptures. Their precepts, promises, directions, light. In them may I learn more of Christ, be enabled to retain his truth, and have grace to follow it. Help me to lift up the gates of my soul, that he may come in, and show me himself when I search the scriptures. For I have no lines to fathom its depth, depths, no wings to soar to its heights, but his aid may be enabled to explore all its truth. Love them with all my heart, embrace them with all my power, and graft them into my life. Bless to my soul all grains of truth garnered from thy word. May they take deep root, be refreshed by heavenly dew, be ripened by heavenly rays, be harvested to my joy and thy praise. Help me to gain profit by what I read, as treasure beyond all treasure, a fountain which can replenish my dry heart, its waters flowing through me as a perennial river, on drawn by the Holy Spirit. Enable me to distill from its pages faithful prayer, that grasps the arm of thy omnipotence, achieves wonders, obtains blessings, and draws draws down streams of mercy. From it, show me how my words have often been unfaithful to thee, injurious to my fellow men, empty of grace, full of folly, dishonoring to my calling. Then write thy own words upon my heart, and inscribe them on my lips. So shall all glory be to thee, and my reading of thy word. Amen. All right. 
Now our evening devotion, the text for it is Luke twenty four twenty seven. He expounded unto them and all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So this was Jesus. Um, if I remember right, if I think it in the right place, this is Jesus after he's been resurrected to the two men on the Emmaus Road. So here we go. Actually, yeah, I'm correct. Okay, so here we go. The two disciples on the road to Emmaus had a most profitable journey. Their companion and teacher was the best of tutors, the interpreter, the interpreter one of a thousand, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The Lord Jesus condescended to become a preacher of the gospel, and he was not ashamed to exercise his calling before an audience of two persons. Neither does he now refuse to become the teacher of even one. Let us court the company of so excellent an instructor, for till he has made unto us wisdom, we shall never be wise unto salvation. This unrivaled tutor used as his class book the best of books. Although able to reveal fresh truth, he preferred to expound the old. He knew by his omniscience what was the most instructive way of teaching, and by turning at once to Moses and the prophets, he showed us that the surest road to wisdom is not speculation, reasoning, or reading human books, but meditation upon the word of God. The readiest way to be spiritually rich in heavenly knowledge is to dig in this mine of diamonds, to gather pearls from this heavenly sea. When Jesus himself sought to enrich others, he wrought in the quarry of Holy Scripture. The favored pair were led to consider the best of subjects, for Jesus spake of Jesus and expounded the things concerning himself. Here the diamond cut the diamond, and what could be more admirable? The master of the house unlocked his own doors and conducted the guests to his table, and placed his own dainties upon it. He who hid the treasure in the field himself guided the searchers to it. Our Lord would naturally discourse upon the sweetest of topics, and he could find none sweeter than his own person and work. With an eye to these, we should always search the word. O oh, for grace to study the Bible, with Jesus as both our teacher and our lesson. All right, well, like I said, we're going to continue on in our study of John chapter 4. Um, we're moving on through the um, study with the uh, woman, the interaction with the woman at the well. And as we've seen, we've seen him interact with the woman at the well. And we've seen him both instruct her and provide us a wonderful guide as to how we, we should uh, evangelize. But we've also seen in her the type of response we should show. It's a great example of how we should respond to our calling, how we should respond to the gospel, how we should respond to our Savior Jesus Christ. She's shown a wonderful example in asking for the living water, knowing she needed to ask for it, though not quite understanding it. Um, and then um, realizing he's a prophet, realizing he's from God, a true realization of that, really seeing him, and then asking about how she should worship. She knows she needs to worship, but asking about how. And then an acknowledgement that the Messiah is who she needs. And of course, he's there. And so, you know, last night we saw, or yeah, last evening we saw, um, as we entered into this next section, the section I was calling the Messiah revealed, at least when I preached it before, um, we, we, we were going to break down this next section. It was basically, um, I believe it was, well, we started in verse 26, but then 27 and goes through like verse 42 or later. Um, we're going to see this broken down into five sections 
Um, and there are five different sections of examples of Jesus showing himself as the Christ. But we saw that there's also still more to see within that. So today we're going to continue in that. And so like yesterday, what we saw was Jesus's perfect management of the circumstances, his perfect management of it, that he had sent the disciples away. He brought them back at the appropriate time, not not by, you know, hey, somebody run, get them, but that he had this all planned out, all organized. The fact is that he was there at the well at that time of the day was a pure, complete control of the circumstances, thus showing his deity. I mean, he was perfectly there at the perfect time with the disciples gone to get food from someplace where it just made no sense culturally for them to get food there and being able to have that conversation. And as he finishes and makes that declaration, I who speak to you am he in verse 26, or I I who speak to you am one of the I am statements stating that he is God incarnate. It's at that point that the disciples come back, that he has arranged for the disciples to come back. So that was that segment, that perfect management of the circumstances of the circumstances around this encounter by Jesus. So the next thing we're going to see in verses 28 through 30, we see the mark that Jesus made on the Samaritan woman. So, verses 28 through 30, and I'm going to read them. So the woman left her water jar and went into the city and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. Is this not the Christ? They went out of the city and were coming to him. So there's another number of things we need to see in this passage. First, Jesus has made such an impact on this woman that she left her water pot, the whole reason she had come out there in the first place, and headed back into town. And of course, a number of commentators make notes that maybe she left it so she so he could continue to drink or something like that, or maybe she left it because she hadn't got the water yet and didn't want to take didn't make sense to take it back and bring it back out and fill it up. Or maybe it was too heavy and she was in a hurry, so she just left it there. Or any number of things that commentators have talked about as possibilities. But in the current context, this woman is now going to, to at a minimum, make two complete round trips out to this well in the heat of the day. And remember, it's further out than many of the wells around Sychar. But how, what hit me, and a number of commentators note this, is that Jesus had made such a mark on this woman that she completely put aside the worldly, completely put aside her temporal need to transport water to her house to carry the message of the Messiah to the village, to carry the message of the Christ, the message of the incarnate God to the village. She set down the worldly. And, and, you know, you and I can go, oh yeah, bucket of water. Believe me, in that time where that is, That bucket of water back and forth is life and death for them. I mean, it it is a true, hardcore, temporal need. I mean, it would be like you and I not eating. I mean, and and I'm talking not eating for days. I'm I'm not talking, oh, I missed one meal out of the three in the day. I'm talking seriously. I mean, it is that critical for her to carry that water. But she sets it aside to take the message of the Messiah to the village. And again, what an example that has to be to you and I, beloved, that the good news, the gospel, the message of the Messiah is so critical and so important and so urgent that we must be driven to drop the things of this world like a hot potato and bring this message to the world. 
What a market has had on her that she does that. She makes that shift. This is, this is somebody that is obviously so encased in the world um, and, is, and, and, in it, and in its immorality that she's had five husbands and the guy she's living with is not her husband. Okay? Um, so badly the fact that she's coming out to this well at noontime where nobody else will be out there and out to a well that nobody else is likely to even come to. But it drives her to the point of dropping the bucket, leaving it there, and taking the message of the gospel, the message of the Messiah, to the village, to people that she won't even, is, is making attempts to not interact with at all. But there's even more we must see in the mark, in the impact that Jesus has had on this woman. Like I said, remember, this is a woman who avoided the wells that were closer to Sychar and went for water at a time of day that nobody else would even think of to avoid contact with her fellow villagers and to avoid their ridicule due to her adulterous state. And, and honestly, even more so the men than the women. I mean, the women would have been bad. The men would have been worse. Yet Jesus' impact on her is so extreme, she went back into the city and said to the men, um, where did I go? Um, Come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. Come see a man who has told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? We can safely assume that she went to the leading men of the city, as that would be reasonable. And now it doesn't, obviously it doesn't say that. But who else is she going to take that message to? I mean, the fact is, she's not interacting with anybody in the village. She's, her behavior prior to this point has made clear that she doesn't interact with any of them. If she's going to violate that, you better believe she's going to the leading men of the city. Um, the, the men that, you know, they talk about all the time that sit at the gates. That tended to be the assembly place for the leaders of the, of the village, the leaders of towns. I would assume that's who she goes to. And also, although her statement is saying that Jesus told her all the sins that she... And, and think about that. I'm sorry, I didn't say although. Also, her statement is saying that Jesus told her all the sins that she has committed. So not only does she go to these people that she's been avoiding, distinctly avoiding, Jesus has made such a mark on her that she comes to these people she won't even interact with, the leading men, the last people she ought to be interacting with. fact is, women weren't supposed to be talking to men. They weren't supposed to be, not even their own husbands, in public. And she's in public going to these people. But then she bears her soul. She bears her sins to them. That Jesus has told her all the sin, sins that she has committed. Come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. That lays it out flat in front of him. She's blatantly exposing that which she had previously hid from these men. Not that she thought they didn't know it. That's why she's coming out at noon. If she thought they really didn't know it, she'd have gone out. She might have gone out any other time and to the other wells. But she knows they know it. And that's what she's saying is, this man has told me all of this, making clear that this man has told me all of this and he's not somebody I've related this to. But we also see that the mark Jesus made on this woman was so extreme that these men went out to see Jesus. They followed her. You got to think about the change that has to have been made in this woman. 
This is the serial adulterer, and they know this. This is the person that would be considered the lowest of the low in that city, and everybody would have known it. This is the one that they would typically not even want to be seen around, much less respond in this way to her questions. They wouldn't even want to respond that way. They, they wouldn't even want to show a response. They wouldn't want to have anything to do with this person. I mean, that, that's just unheard of. I mean, as, as apostate and corrupt as the, Sumerian, the Samaritan religion, their, their pseudo-Jewish religion was, they still had purity laws and stuff like that. And being seen around her, a woman who's considered impure, they wouldn't have wanted to do that in any way, shape, or form. But then especially see the way she phrased her witness to them. Come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. Is this not Christ? She brings this information. So, well, wait. So notice, she doesn't say, I've seen the Messiah, neener, 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 or some kind of puffing up of importance, or even a declaration that I've seen the Messiah. She doesn't declare what Christ has said to her. She brings this information to the leading men of the, men of the city in a deferential way, pre presenting the facts of what had occurred and asking if this could be the Messiah, thus letting these men draw the conclusions, thus letting these men be the leaders in that village. She's not trying to assert any leadership. She's not trying to come preach to them. She's bringing the information. This man has told me all the things that I have done. This man who does not even know me is doing this. Is this not the Christ? But she's been so changed, so marked by her encounter with Jesus, that her witness to these leading men of the city propels them into heading out of the city to see this Messiah in the middle of the day, no less. In a time of day that they're not typically going to go do this. This is not the time of day um, that, that these people do these kind of things. Jesus has made such a mark on the Samaritan woman on the, that we will see through Jesus' word that the Holy Spirit has used her testimony to bring these men to a saving faith in Christ. Jesus has made such a mark on her that has allowed her to make such a mark on these people by bringing the gospel to them that they are brought out to see him and they come to a saving faith in Christ. Now, Homer Kent, um, I came across this in one of the commentaries I read. Homer Kent says about the reasons for the woman's approach about this coming deferentially. The woman immediately wanted to give testimony to others of what she had found, but she did so with utmost tact. It would have been unseemly, presumptuous, and probably ineffective for this woman to attempt to teach the men of the city regarding spiritual truth. Her background hardly qualified her to speak with authority on religious and spiritual matters. Therefore, her statement to them was phrased in a deliberately cautious way so as not to arouse antagonism. Now, what it sounds like from her life and the immorality, that wasn't the norm for this woman. But Jesus has had such an impact on her, has made such a mark on her, 
that she comes deferentially and brings them the gospel. And in thinking about these verses, verses, I got two images in my head. And they're a little weird, but it was kind of funny. But it was telling. The first was of the wedding of the woman heading back to Sychar. And I know the text doesn't show this, but I can't help thinking of her like the father in the story of the prodigal son. When he, when he sees the prodigal son coming home and he takes off running out to greet him and he, and he hikes up his robes so that he can run. I mean, totally putting aside any decorum or anything else because he has to get to his son as quickly as possible. And that's how I think of this woman hiking up her skirt. I mean, up off the ground, not, you know, in an inappropriate way, but up off the ground and high stepping it very fast back into Sychar. But the second is of the men coming to the well from Sychar. I think of them as a kind of stampede, not necessarily unorganized, but very energetic. In both cases, I see them as being totally energized by what is going on and acting with a sense of urgency. And shouldn't that be how we respond to the message of the Messiah? I mean, we see a number of things here that apply to us. Think of how this woman is marked by her encounter with Jesus Christ. Shouldn't you and I be so marked in our being brought to a saving faith in Christ? Shouldn't we be so marked and be so different from who we had been that we have the same kind of impact in our communities as this woman has? Shouldn't we so be, be so driven that we drop the temporal and we take off to bring the message of the Messiah to the village around us, to our neighbors. I, we're called to love our neighbors as ourselves. Well, if we truly love them, we bring them the gospel. We don't sit there quiet trying to be nice. I'm not saying we're, we're aggressive and mean and anything like that, trying to shove the gospel down their throat, but we bring it to them. We bring it to them because we love them and we cannot, we cannot even fathom seeing them face eternity in hell, face eternal damnation. We've got to be so marked, like this woman was, that not only do we do that, but then when people interact with us, they can't help but be changed. They can't help but be drawn if they are those that were called before the foundation of the earth. We have to be so marked like this Samaritan woman. We have to have been so changed by our encounter with Christ that we can't help but have an impact like this Samaritan woman. All right. Well, God willing, come back to the next evidence that we see. And, and in this case, what an amazing mark Jesus has made on this woman. And he could have only done so through his divinity, through him being God incarnate. And so again, we see that evidence of him being God incarnate, which should, again, should continue to drive home to us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, so that in believing we would have life in his name. But we also have to be impacted by the effect Jesus had on that woman and by that example and how we have got to mirror that example, that we have got to be so marked by Christ that we have the same effect 
that this Samaritan woman had in the village of Sychar. All right. So let's go ahead and close like we normally do on a Wednesday with the fourth day evening prayer. It's called God All Sufficient. Let's pray. King of glory, divine majesty, every perfection adorns thy nature and sustains thy throne. The heavens and earth are thine. The world is thine and its fullness. Thy power created the universe from nothing. Thy wisdom has managed all its multiple concerns, presiding over nations, families, individuals. Thy goodness is boundless. All creatures wait on thee, are supplied by thee, are satisfied in thee. How precious are the thoughts of thy mercy and grace. How excellent thy loving kindness that draws men to thee. Teach us to place our happiness in thee, the blessed God, never seeking life among the dead things of earth or asking for that which satisfies the deluded. But may we prize the light of thy smile, implore the joy of thy salvation, find our heaven in thee. Thou hast attended to our happiness more than we can do. Though we are fallen creatures, thou hast not neglected us. In love and pity, thou hast provided us a savior. Apply his redemption to our hearts by justifying our persons and sanctifying our natures. We confess our transgressions, have mercy on us. We are weary, give us rest. Ignorant, make us wise unto salvation. Helpless, let thy strength be made perfect in our weakness. Poor and needy, bless us with Christ's unsearchable riches. Perplexed and tempted, let us travel on unchecked, undismayed, knowing that thou hast said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Blessed be thy name. Amen. All right. Well, again, I hope you have a wonderful evening. I hope our time together, both this morning and this afternoon, um, has been edifying and has equipped you for your walk of sanctification, has equipped you for your ministry that we are all called to, to bring the gospel to all nations. Um, I, again, I hope you have a wonderful night. And God willing, I will see you in the morning. God bless. Mm-hmm.